The word superlative is a comparative word. You, you have to have um, more than one, and that which is superlative is the utmost in a class, a group, a list. If we were to have Dana's fifth grade class standing before us this morning, we would rather easily be able to identify which is the smallest and which is the tallest comparative to that group of students. But if all the kids in the school where she teaches were to stand before us, I dare say that none of those fifth graders would be the smallest or the tallest. It has to do with what you're comparing it to. Now we got, just got back a week ago from sailing on the Coast Guard cutter Healy. It's an icebreaker. The Coast Guard has two such open seas icebreakers, the Healy and the Polar Star. The Healy goes to the North Pole, the Polar Star to the South Pole. The Healy, driving at mm, two to four knots, can sustain breaking ice, sea ice that is four feet thick. And by ramming and backing and ramming, it can crush eight feet ice. Ice that's eight feet thick. Now, the Healy is the greatest, the biggest, to use superlatives, in the Coast Guard's fleet. But it's not the greatest in terms of its capability of breaking ice. The Polar Star can break ice because the, sh the hull is shaped differently. It can break ice that's 20 feet thick, albeit smaller, a smaller vessel. I learned while I was on that ship that the Healy holds 1.2 million gallons of diesel fuel. With today's prices, that is one expensive fill-up. But it pales in comparison to the now decommissioned aircraft carrier, the John F. Kennedy. When it was uh, built in the 1960s, it was the biggest in its class and it contained more, it, it drug around the world more than five times the amount of fuel in the Coast Guard cutter, the Healy. That's astonishing. That's amazing. But I didn't come here this morning to talk about ice cubes and dinosaur juice. I came to talk about the greatness of our God. And when it comes to God's greatness, the, 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 the human language that, that we speak, English or any other language, is, in, is unable, it, it, it is incomplete, it, it cannot capture 
the fullness, the grandeur, the splendor, the majesty of God. We might get a, a, a thesaurus out and might start stringing superlatives together, but even so, that would be incomplete. Our God is the all-powerful one, the all-knowing one. He is perfect. He is complete. He is, he is sovereign. He is the king of all kings. He is the Lord of all lords. He is the epitome of kindness and justice and mercy and grace. He sees everything. He understands everything. Compared with any other thing, any other being, God is the greatest, the most excellent, the most praiseworthy, the most wonderful. And after all of that, we have only gotten started and haven't even begun to capture the greatness of God. The text before us this morning is an attempt to begin to capture the wonder, the majesty, the splendor, indeed the greatness of the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm in Matthew. No, I'm not. I'm in the Gospel of John. Chapter 8. We have been in this chapter for some time now. And Jesus has been engaged in a conversation with a, a, a mixed audience. And we find some absolutely wonderful, some great verses in this particular chapter. Look with me. John chapter 8, verse 12. This is one of them, coming from the lips of Jesus. I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Here's another one. Chapter 8, verse 24. Unless you believe that I am he, Messiah, Christos, you will die in your sins. Here's another one. Verse 31. If you continue in my word, Jesus says, then you are truly disciples of mine, and you will know the truth, and the truth will make you free. In the weeks, indeed months, that we have been looking at this chapter, we have, we have discovered some wonderful things about what a true disciple, a, a genuine convert to Christ looks like. Uh, here, here's some character qualities that we have, we have pulled from this particular chapter. A, a, a true disciple, a person that's genuinely saved, knows the truth, intellectually, and knows him who is truth experientially. These are people that stick like glue to the person of Christ and the words of Christ. They want to know what Jesus says. They want to follow what Jesus says. These are people that hear and heed the words of Christ. These are people that overcome 
pressures and powers that would lure us away from him who is truth, we stick like glue to Jesus and what he says. Now this morning, we are um, going to look from look at verses 48 through the end of the chapter. And I remind you that there is a, there is a mixed audience here. There are, there are those that were genuine believers in this particular audience. And Jesus addresses them in verse 31, for example. But the majority of, of, of people here are, are, are not Jesus followers. They are Jesus haters. They are Jesus deniers. They want nothing to do with Jesus. Indeed, they are doing everything they can in order to crush him, remove him, kill him. Now, Jesus recognizes that these are um, descendants of Abraham. They are, they are Jews. Um, these people thought they were okay because of their religious lineage because they were sons and daughters of Abraham. In verse 39, Jesus said, if, if, if you are Abraham's children, do the deeds of Abraham. But as it is, you are, you are seeking to kill me. A man who has told you the truth, which I heard from God, this Abraham did not do. You are doing the deeds of your father. Verse 44, you are of your father, the devil, and you want to do the desires of your father. These are the people that are primarily in Jesus' mind um, as, uh, as we conclude this chapter. Follow along with me as I read our text, beginning at verse 48. The Jews, these particular Jews, answered and said to Jesus, Do we not say rightly that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? Jesus answered, I do not have a demon, but I honor my father, and you dishonor me. But I do not seek my glory. There is one who seeks and judges. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. The Jews said to him, now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died, and the prophets also. And you say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste of death? Surely you are not greater than our father Abraham who died. The prophets died also. Whom do you make yourself out to be? Jesus answered, If I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my father who glorifies me, of whom you say he is our God. And you have not come to know him. But I know him. 
And if I say I do not know him, I will be a liar like you, but I do know him and keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day. And he saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, You are not yet 50 years old, and you have seen Abraham. Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was born, I am. Therefore they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. I think Jesus makes two large points here. I put them in your notes as main points in my message. First, Jesus was not of the devil. In verse 48, the the Jews answered to Jesus, and they say, Do we not say rightly that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? Now, the first charge that Jesus is a Samaritan is an ob ad hominem attack. That is, a Latin phrase, uh, we've seen this before in John's Gospel, it means to the man. They are attacking Jesus. Typical of politicians that we see every day. If you cannot deal with the issue, then you attack the person delivering the issue. We saw it in verse uh, um, 41 of this chapter. These Jews said, we were not born of fornication. And here's what they were saying. Jesus was identifying himself. The, the bulk of this chapter is dealing with the identity of Jesus and his authority. They couldn't deal with Jesus at that level. And so they said, your mother wears army boots. Your mother is a fornicator. Well, it came about this way. They presumed that Joseph was Jesus' biological father. And yet Jesus kept talking about having another father. He was not talking about um, God the Father in the same sense of biology The Jews didn't grasp that, didn't want to grasp it. But they they used that to their uh, supposed advantage, uh, trying to undermine Jesus' authority by saying, well, we know who your father is, and yet you claim to have another father. Ergo, your mom must have been an adulteress. You were born of fornication. No, that wasn't the case at all. But they weren't interested in the truth. And so here, in verse 48, they pull the race card. Oh, you're a Samaritan. You're a mulatto. You're a half-breed. We don't, have to li- we don't have to listen to you. You're a nobody. You're a nothing. You're not one or the other. You're a Samaritan. And they would have said it with disdain. Now, notice that Jesus doesn't deal with that because Jesus loved Samaritans. 
He had a wonderful conversation with the Samaritan woman in chapter 4. But he does deal with their charge that he's a demon. Or rather, he has a demon. To have a demon is to say that he is demon-possessed. He is controlled by a demon. Um, Satanic minions. And Jesus answered them very simply in verse 49. I do not have a demon. Well, now he goes on and he proves how, how we know that that's the case. He says this. I honor my father. The greatest honor we find in the next verse. I do not seek my glory. Jesus sought the glory of the father. Jesus did nothing except what had been directed to him to do by the father. He said nothing except that which the father told him. Now, we've seen this many times in this gospel record. I wrote a couple of references down in your notes. Look at chapter 5, verse 19. Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, the, the Son of Man can do nothing of himself unless it is something he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, these things the Son also does in like manner. Chapter 6, verse 38. Jesus says, I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Chapter 8, verse 38. I'm sorry, verse 28. Again, Jesus is speaking. I do nothing of my own initiative, but I speak these things as the Father taught me. Look over chapter 12. Jesus says this just a couple of months after this event in chapter 8. Chapter 12, verse 49. I did not speak on my own initiative, but the Father himself who sent me has given me a commandment as to what to say and what to speak. So what Jesus is saying is simply this. What you see me doing and what you hear me doing comes directly from the Father. I'm not seeking my own glory. I am seeking the glory of him who sent me. I am seeking to honor him by obeying that which he instructs me to do, that which he instructs me to say. And that's all that I'm doing and all that I'm saying. I am not, cannot be demon-possessed, influenced, or controlled by any demonic power because I am solely only doing that which has been given me by the Father. Pretty clear, pretty convincing, pretty compelling. But honestly, they're not interested. Verse 51. Jesus concludes this, this, this statement at this point with this word. 
Truly, truly, I say to you, that's, that's, a, that's a flag. We've looked at this a number of times in this gospel record. Uh, amen, amen. If we were just to, to read the Greek text. I say to you, meaning, if translated, guys, get out a pen and paper, write this down, you need to know this. This is muy importante. If anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. That's the good news. Now, to keep Jesus' word is to hear and to heed what he has said. We've, we've looked at that a number of times here in this chapter alone. To, to keep God's word is to stick like glue to what he has said. It is to walk in obedience, as obedient as a shadow to the words of Christ. That person who keeps his word is a true disciple. That's a person who has died to himself. That's a person who says, what, what I want is, is not important to me anymore. My focus, my desire, is to find myself in Christ. To walk with Him. To walk in obedience to what he has said, because I know that is my greatest good. Paul captured these words, this, these, this, this idea, in, in different words, in, in the book of Philippians, chapter 3. He wrote this, Whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as lost, for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be lost. All things are dead to me. In view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish, so I may be, so I may gain Christ. The joy and the delight of a true believer is to keep Christ's word. And Jesus says, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. My friends, the devil can't steal enough, swindle enough capital to pull off that kind of a promise. No, Jesus is not demonically possessed, controlled, influenced in any way. No, they missed it entirely. Second page of your notes. Not surprising, um, the Jews did not understand what Jesus said in verse 51 regarding death. 
He who keeps my word will never see death. Jesus was not talking about physical death. He's, this, this, this life passes before us so quickly, so rapidly. He's talking about something that is eternal in scope and nature. He's talking about spiritual death. That person who is rightly related to Christ, who repents of sin, who believes in Christ, who says, Jesus is my surpassing value, that person will never, never see spiritual death, will never be eternally separated from Christ. Never. These Jews didn't get that. Because they thought, well, that Jesus isn't demon-possessed. He's just, he's just a guy. He's just a mere man. And Jesus goes out of his way to declare otherwise. Verse 52, the Jews said to him, Now we know that you have a demon. Now we know that you are certifiable, Jesus. You are a loon. You are crazy. You are out of your mind. What do you mean? Abraham died, and the prophets also. And you say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death? What? Your word is, is incredulous. It, it can't be true. Surely, verse 53... You are not greater than our father Abraham who died. The prophets died also. Whom do you make yourself out to be? Who are you? My friends, I would submit to you, that is the question of the ages. That's the question of every generation. Who is Jesus and what will you do about it? Is he... Somebody on the lunatic fringe. Is he someone who is demonically possessed in some way? Is he just a mere man? Or is he something more than? Jesus answers them, verse 54. If I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. Think about it with me for a second. If, if Jesus wanted to, to bask in glory, he would never have come to earth. He would have stayed in heaven. Coming to earth was, 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 was not something desirable, didn't bring him glory. His mission, as instructed him by the Father, was to seek and to save that which was lost. His mission was to bear the sins of many. His mission was to die for his people. From this particular point, it was just a few months before the feast of Passover where Jesus would surrender his life voluntarily to accomplish the Father's mission. 
If I glorify myself, Jesus says, my glory is nothing. It goes nowhere. It is my Father who glorifies me, of whom you say he is our God. And the Father would do that. For after Jesus accomplished his work on the cross, he says, it's finished. Done. Tetelestai. All finished. It was after that, after his death, after his resurrection, he was coronated, ascended into heaven, seated at the right hand of the Father, and there stands, sits in his glory. The Father would glorify him. Now those in his audience claimed that that God is their God. Verse 55, but you have not come to know him. I know him. If I say I don't know him, I will be a liar like you. But I do know him and keep his word. Jesus knew the word of the Father. He kept the word of the Father. He heard and heeded the word of the Father. He walked in perfect obedience, as obedient as a shadow to the word of the Father. And that's how we know that Jesus was not demon-possessed. He was indeed sent from knowledgeable of God the Father. Verse 56. Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, And he saw it and was glad. Now the Jews are are, are incredulous because they are thinking purely in physical terms. They say, verse verse 57, um, you're not yet 50 years old. And and, and, and have you seen Abraham? You're not even old enough to be an elder sitting in the gate. You're what, 33 years old, Jesus? Abraham lived two millennia ago. And he died. And you're claiming not only to be greater than Abraham, but also to be at least as old as Abraham. Now, when Jesus says in verse 56, Abraham rejoiced to see my day, he is, he is speaking um, uh, uh, prophetically. Uh, he said that by faith, Abraham saw the day. He knew there was coming a time when God would send his Redeemer. He knew there was going to be a time when this Redeemer would be the blessing of the nations. All the world would be blessed by this one. And by faith, Abraham knew God would deliver on that promise. And so he was looking forward eagerly to the time when that promise would be fulfilled. Abraham rejoiced to see my day, my time, the era of Messiah. And he saw it by faith 
and was glad. Glad that God, he, the God he knew, would always fulfill his promises. You're not yet 50 years old. You've seen Abraham? And Jesus replies, maybe, uh, maybe we could use a superlative word here. Is this the greatest statement Jesus makes regarding his identity and his authority in the Gospels? I suppose that's up for consideration, maybe discussion. Listen to what he says. Truly, truly, I say to you, here it is again. Guys, pen and paper, take it out, write notes. This is muy importante. Before Abraham was born, or before Abraham was, I am. Now, notice what he doesn't say. He does not say, before Abraham was, I was. Now, if Jesus had done that, he would have mired himself and the conversation restricting it to the physical realm. It doesn't do that. It goes beyond that. Jesus says, I am. Now we've seen this before. We'll see it a number of other times here in John's Gospel where, where, where Jesus is pulling from the name that God gave to Moses at uh, Sinai prior to the Israelites being led out of the uh, wilderness, where God identifies himself to Moses as the I am, or in Hebrew, Yahweh. So in, in, in one sense, here's just another example where Jesus identifies himself as Yahweh, the I am. But as we think about how to translate this particular idea, we, are, we, we would be correct in affirming what Jesus is saying about himself. He is the timeless one. He is the one who has no beginning. He always is, has been, will be. He is the eternally existent one. Verse 59, the Jews got it. They're, they're, not, um, they're not ignorant to what Jesus is saying here. You know, we, we, we talk about people that are um, uh, slow or incapable of mentally following with you as, as you know being not the not the, the the brightest light bulb in the pack or not the sharpest crayon in the box the people right here before Jesus are bright lights and sharp crayons they get it their problem with Jesus is not one of comprehension they understand what he's putting down. Their problem is one of belief. 
They will not submit to Jesus. They won't humble themselves and come under his authority. They have no intention, no plan, no desire to keep his word. They want to do their own thing. Thank you very much. So it says in this verse 59, they, they pick up stones to throw at him. Well, in Leviticus 24, verse 16, it tells us that uh, somebody guilty of blasphemy is worthy of a capital punishment. Um, uh, they, they should be put to death, and specifically by stoning. Now, that, that happens, um, according to Mosaic Law, after a uh, calm a judicial deliberation over a particular case. There's no calmness, there's no deliberation here in this particular instance. Uh, th- this is called mob violence. These people wanted nothing to do with Jesus, hated everything that he said, everything that he stood for, and they hunted for rocks to throw at him in order to take his life. Now the rest of verse 59 tells us that Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. Uh, now we, we, don't, we don't have to uh, assume that Jesus jumped into a telephone booth and hopped out with invisible clothes. Um, it, simply, it simply means that uh, he left. As they were looking around for rocks to throw, Jesus stepped aside and he stepped out of the temple. It was not his time. His time would come. And that time would come when he would voluntarily lay his life down before these very people. Very clear. Jesus' identity and his authority. He is none other than Almighty God. And he wields the authority of Almighty God. Conclusion. The New Testament writers um, certainly pick up on this in, in, in many, many ways. In uh, the book of Colossians, for example, Paul writes in chapter 2, verse 9, In him, in Jesus, all the fullness of deity, of deity dwells in bodily form. Book of Hebrews, chapter 1. He, that is Jesus, is the radiance of his glory, the Father's glory, and the exact representation of the Father's nature. In his letter to Titus, in Peter's first epistle, both apostles describe Jesus as our God and Savior. There's no question, um, as Jesus revealed himself, as the apostles rehearsed that revelation, Jesus is fully God. And as such... He has the right to impose obligation. That is, Jesus 
in his authority as God of very God, light of very light. He can and will tell us what to do. Now our fallen nature recoils at that. We don't like that. We don't want somebody telling us what to do. But that's exactly what he does. He is the creator. He is the sustainer. He does what he chooses to do. Blessed are those, eternally blessed are those who come under his authority and fulfill his desire. Our response to God to, to Jesus' greatness to be obedient as a shadow. To hear and to heed what he says. That means I am I, I, I am I am a sponge. My eyes, my mind, my soul, my heart is in the scriptures. I want to know what he has said. Because what he says carries with it a, a, a demand of, of how I must respond. As obedient as a shadow. And secondly, I keep short accounts when I fail. I keep short accounts when I fail. And I fail frequently. So many times, I, I, I fail to look into the scriptures and I'm spending more time looking at news on the internet, chasing out this curiosity or that curiosity. Maybe we would be best to fast from the internet that I might devote myself to the teachings of scripture oh but when I fall and I will I will fail him we've got this verse 1 John chapter 1 verse 9 if we confess our sins he's faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness Peter says in his second epistle, what sort of people ought we be in holy conduct and godliness? What kind of people ought we to be? In the company of literary gentlemen, the great lexicographer Daniel Webster was asked if he could comprehend how Jesus could be both fully God and fully man. This is what Webster said. No, sir, I should be ashamed to acknowledge him as my Savior if I could comprehend him. If I could comprehend him, he could be no greater than myself. Such is my sense of sin. 
and consciousness of my inability to save myself. That I feel I need a superhuman Savior. One so great and glorious that I cannot comprehend Him. This is the greatness of our Jesus. He is the glorious one. He alone is worthy of our worship and our obedience. Let's pray. Father, I am... Overwhelmed at the task of trying to describe the wonder, the greatness, the majesty of the Lord Jesus. And I honestly, I feel like I'm just coming up dry. Words just are so inadequate. Oh, I suppose we could string more superlatives together, but but in the end, you are far greater. I want to know you even more. I want to know how incomprehensible you are. I know that in so doing, I will be more than nothing. I will be less than nothing. But that's okay. For you will be greater. For you are the greatest. Fill us with joy in our journey to learn and explore and to capture small photographs of your grandeur. We pray this in the name of the Savior. Amen.